The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When does foreign influence cross the line into malign foreign influence or into an area where the FBI needs to get involved in? We have decided we are limiting our engagement in these foreign influence operations to those that are subversive, undeclared, coercive, or criminal. And if it, if it hits one of those four pieces, subversive, undeclared, coercive, or criminal, the FBI will engage and we'll either engage investigatively, uh, many times we'll do defensive briefings to the, the entity that's being targeted, and sometimes we'll even get their cooperation to work back against whatever Chinese or, or Russian or Iranian entity is doing the influence. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 3rd, 2023. This week, I wore my hat as the senior fellow at the George Mason University's Michael V. Hayden Center for Intelligence, Policy, and International Security to host a rare live conversation on counterintelligence with leading practitioners. My guests were Miriam Grace McIntyre, Executive Director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, and Alan Kohler, Assistant Director of Counterintelligence at the FBI. We discussed the organization known as NCSC, the role it plays, and how the FBI's long-running counterintelligence efforts play into it. We talked a lot about the People's Republic of China and its extensive intelligence efforts against the United States. We talked about science, we talked about outreach to the public, we talked about Congress, a whole lot of things came up in this conversation. The event was not brief, so we've edited this conversation slightly for length without losing any significant substance. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 3rd, Counterintelligence Today, with Miriam Grace McIntyre and Alan Kohler. I'll start with you, Miriam. You are from an organization that, in my experience, even people working within the U.S. government for quite some time often don't know about, the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. Give us the background brief. What is it, and why was it created when we already had the FBI and other entities working on counterintelligence over so many years? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. And there are a lot of people that don't know what the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, NCSC, uh, for short, uh, does. Uh, NCSC is responsible for leading and supporting the U.S. government's counterintelligence and security activities. It is a component of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And it was previously, uh, years ago, uh, another organization called the Office of the National Counterintelligence Executive. So 
it didn't just come out of nowhere. So in our work to lead and support the counterintelligence and security activities of the US government, we do a number of things. Um, I think the best way to describe the work we do is it's really to integrate uh, the counterintelligence activities of different counterintelligence components of the U.S. government so that we're working towards a common goal. Some of this you might see in the national CI strategy. So how do we bring all of the activities that the CI community has and the authorities that they have together in a way uh, that, that helps us achieve these objectives? We also have an important outreach function. So uh, part of our outreach is uh, Congress has <coughs> mandated that we do outreach to private sector entities that are at risk of being targeted by foreign intelligence services. We also issue public warnings on foreign intelligence threats. And some, some of this space we have done uh, jointly with FBI, of course. But that is one, one aspect of our mission set. <coughs> I would say back in the old days, and it's up to you to decide how long ago the old days were, the, the kind of outreach you would think about in terms of counterintelligence was somebody like Alan showing up at your company saying, you have a problem. You know, we're here to tell you that there's been a compromise or there's been an issue. And it sounds like you're trying to get ahead of that. You're trying to talk to people before there's a problem to help to help prevent it from happening in the first place. That's right. We are trying to get ahead of it. So yeah. one of the ways we think about this is to look at the counterintelligence landscape, to look at how the, the targets that the foreign intelligence services are focused on. I mean, we see, for example, that they are uh, targeting every sector of our economy. So much of our outreach thus far has yeah. been to industry. We also see them targeting uh, state and local uh, government leaders. And so we've, we've done outreach in that space as well. And really it is to get a greater understanding at those levels of how foreign intelligence services operate, what kind of information they might want, and what mitigations those organizations or state and local levels might be able to put in place uh, as they move forward in their engagements, potentially with some of these foreign intel services. Yeah. Okay, we're going to drill down on a couple of those aspects as we go on in the conversation. Sure. But Alan, let's, let's bring you in. <clears throat> with this overview, this integrating function of the ODNI in the entity of NCSC. FBI has been doing counterintelligence for a very long time. How do you fit into that structure and what specifically does the FBI do within its slice of counterintelligence? First of all, thank you for having me here. And uh, when you uh, were talking about the, back in the good old days, I, I feel like I've been around long enough that I actually lived in the, the good old <laughs> black and white days, you know? There was a time not too long ago, uh, so I got in <clears throat> in the bureau in 96, there was a time not too long ago where we wouldn't say, Russia, China, or Iran out loud, and we would sort of obliquely talk about threats from foreign adversaries or national security threat countries. And what we've realized is that just didn't didn't answer the, the mail for for our constituents. You know, people need to know what the threats were, who they're coming from, what the vectors are. So we have changed our posture greatly, particularly in the last five years, but really in the time since maybe 2000, when we're trying to be more forward leaning and sharing information doing events like this to talk about the threats and then how people can engage with the FBI. What do you think spurred that change the most? Was that more of a, an external environmental thing or internal leadership saying, we just need to get ahead of this more? So I think it was a reflection, if we talk about how the threats have morphed, when I got into uh, the FBI working counterintelligence in 96, I was a, a baby agent in the Washington field office and I spent most of my time frankly, chasing Russian intelligence officers around the streets of Washington. And we were very focused on uh, watching 
people in buildings who are trying to steal U.S. government secrets. And then the Economic Espionage Act was passed in 1996. And there's a realization, probably took us too long to realize it, that, hey, the real uh, secrets that other, uh, that our adversaries want are not necessarily the U.S. government classified secrets. It's not what I have in my safe. It's, it's what's in the heads of the engineers that work for, you know, IBM and Apple and, and Intel. It's, it's what is in the computer assist drives of these companies. Those are the, the, the pieces of information that drive our economy and keep our national security going. And that's what our adversaries are targeting. So, so the only way that we could really, uh, people inside the government sort of understood that we were targets. The only way to get people in industry and in academia to understand that they were targets and we needed to work together to protect everything was to just be more open about it. And, uh, we're still learning. We're still evolving how we talk about the threats and how much we share, but we're light years ahead of where we were and even 10 years ago. This event would not have happened. Uh, in this fashion, even ten years ago, it would not. No, no. no. Let's let's talk about a few of those threats, and and in the course of doing so, we'll hit some of the things you've mentioned about some of the things that are different now than they would have been a decade or more before. Let's start with what has been publicly identified by people in the counterintelligence community as the premier threat: China, the People's Republic of China. Talk about the threat overall, Miriam. I'll start with you. Kind of, how do you characterize the overall threat, especially how? diverse and, and, and wide-ranging it is in a way that in some ways the old Soviet Union and post-Soviet Russia wasn't. Why, why, is, why is the PRC such a, I would say, unique threat in American history from a counterintelligence point of view? Yeah, I think it's a unique threat because it poses both a national security and an economic security threat to the United States. They are an incredibly capable intelligence actor, one that poses or presents really the, the broadest and most persistent cyber espionage threat to U.S. government networks, as well as to U.S. private sector networks. And, and that's deeply concerning. They are involved in foreign malign influence activities to advance both their, you know, their political, economic, and, and, uh, security goals. And they are really on the cutting edge of pushing our, our technological competitive. So we've seen, you know, for example, in Made in China 2025, as they rolled out this plan, this effort on their part to um, achieve self-sufficiency in key technology areas, that along with the five-year plan that they rolled out in 2021, which highlighted key technology areas where they wanted to surpass the United States, this has really driven the intelligence collection and targeting of these sectors by the Chinese intelligence services. So I think that's why it's incredibly unique. Yeah, yeah I would just add to that that, as Miriam said, with the, the Made in 2025 plans and or Made in China 2025, the five-year plans, China has a plan, has a hundred-year plan to essentially be the only superpower in the world. And their goal is to outpace us and they're going to do it any way they can. And they're doing it on a scale that is almost incomprehensible to the average person when you think about how many people China has, but how much resource they put towards their intelligence apparatus and their talent development. It's, it's incredible. And uh, their, their effort against the United States is, is easily much larger than all other countries combined. And they have the money and the industry that can take advantage of the information they're stealing from us in a way that no other country can do. The way you've described that 
it goes back to what you started with, Miriam, which is the NCSC trying to coordinate and integrate all of this. This sounds like a much wider, almost whole of government approach for the United States than it used to be in counterintelligence, where it was isolated to a few three-letter agencies. But now what you've just described, you of course have to have DOD and the Department of State involved and the intelligence community. You have to have the Department of Commerce involved. You have to have the Department of Agriculture involved. You have to have just about everybody involved at some point because of the wide nature of the threat. How do you go about integrating all of that when even the ODNI itself is usually restricted to those 17 or 18 agencies and not all of these agencies and departments across the government? Yeah, that's a fantastic question because some of those agencies or those departments that you've mentioned are not part of the U.S. intelligence community, and that makes it challenging. Let me hit on your your first point about this being, you know, a whole of government effort. I think, you know, when we think about the threat from from China, they are employing a very broad effort against the United States, right? They use a lot of different types of collectors, not just, you know, the traditional collectors working out of out of a Chinese embassy, but a range of non-traditional collectors that, that they're using to target this information. Um, and so I think because we're seeing the threat landscape change so widely, that really drives greater cooperation and collaboration across the interagency to include at those departments that are not part of the intelligence community. So to get to your question on how we do that, I mean, um, we have great partnerships. Uh, we at, at NCSC, one of the things we do actually also run is the National Insider Threat Task Force, and that incorporates a lot of the work, the non-Title 50s, which is shorthand for uh, non-IC agencies uh, participate in. That allows us to um, engage with departments and agencies that don't have traditional CI authorities, if you will, to get the threat information out there and to help them build defensive programs. We've also partnered with uh, the National Science Foundation this past year to roll out a program called Safeguarding Science. And this is really looking at how, you know, the Chinese intelligence services target our research communities. So getting more information out there about how those communities can put in place mitigations against those threats, that is one way that we do that collaboration. When, when most people traditionally thought about counterintelligence, they, they weren't thinking about the National Institute of Standards and Technology, <laughs> I think it is, and mm-hmm. NIST, yeah. or, or the National Science Foundation, or the uh, Association of Universities. And yet, you've brought all those together in this safeguarding science effort. Describe the toolkit that NCSC has developed on safeguarding science to help this wider array of actors understand counterintelligence threats and hopefully bring them to the attention of officials who can help them deal with them. Yeah, so I'd say there's a website for this, so we would encourage people uh, to go to it and sort of look at those those resources and use them themselves. But it is broadly talking about the way the threat presents itself, the counterintelligence threat presents itself, and the types of mitigations organizations can put in place. So whether they are insider threat programs or supply chain programs, there are a wide range of tools that uh, different organizations can, can use to help mitigate. Uh, mm-hmm. some of the threats emanating from these intel services. Mm-hmm. Alan, let's bring that back to the Bureau. So <clears throat> let's say that you have one of these diverse threats, I'll call them. And I'm thinking here of something that is uh, very publicly known, the SEEDS case of probably more than 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. So not an active case, but where Chinese, the Chinese government 
there's a longer story, but the Chinese government essentially was going after some multi-million dollar seeds that had been developed, I think in Iowa, if, if I remember right. And that's not the kind of thing that your predecessors worried about the Soviets doing in the 1960s. How do you take what Miriam described in terms of this big effort, in terms of getting everyone involved, and how does that focus in when it comes to actual cases? Yeah, so Miriam did a great job of explaining how NCSC puts together the strategy and, and helps push out information to the, to the agencies. What the FBI does is, with our partners, put those strategies into action. So I'll give you an example. We have, uh, three years ago, we created the National Counterintelligence Task Force. Uh, that has grown to a task force of 50 agencies. All the three-letter agencies that you can think of, all the U.S. intelligence community agencies, and then a whole bunch that you wouldn't think would be in the counterintelligence fight with us. And But it's important for us to bring these folks in and bring these agencies in because they have uh, people and authorities and capabilities and data that we absolutely need to apply to the threats. So when we talk about a whole-of-government effort against us, we have to marshal a whole-of-government response to this. So, for example, you mentioned NIST or IRS or CBP, and most people would say, well, what, what does that have to do with counterintelligence? And to be honest, when we, when we first brought these, some of these agencies in, we said, we really don't know what they're going to do with us. But the threats from China, Russia, and Iran are so great that we need the resources of all these other agencies to help us. So we're bringing them in. They're getting the training, the access. They're in the briefings. And at some point, at multiple points over the last three years, they've all stepped up and said, you know what? We can help with that. But well, we've got a thing to solve that problem. And then we surge and we solve the problem and we move on and we, we share and we, and we get better each, each iteration. So... People should be rest assured that the stovepipes of old days, uh, again, going back to the old days, are no longer there. There's a spirit of cooperation that I have not seen. It, it just continued to grow in my 20-something years in the Bureau. And the what the National Counterintelligence Task Force is going to do is put the national strategy into action in a way that's going to make us much more effective against the adversaries. I think that's, that's great to hear that that cooperation is <clears throat> happening, but... There's going to be some skepticism there because there's a history of a lot of culture clash. I'm not going to single out the FBI here. But when it comes to the FBI and the culture, uh, the, <laughs> sure. the, nature of the, the nature of the FBI cooperating, just sometimes coming in without having had a lot of those background briefings and saying, we're here, we're addressing this, that didn't always go well. Now you're in an environment which is different, and you're saying, we're going to bring all these organizations in, we're going to have all these briefings, Counterintelligence is very sensitive. How do you have the briefings at such a level that they're not just interesting, but helpful to these entities, but they're not revealing things to people who aren't read into the most sensitive counterintelligence compartments? Yeah, yeah. So we've had to go from, I'm the FBI, I'm here to help, and I'm taking over, to, to where we are today. Uh, you're, you're exactly right. And that is, there's always a struggle between giving people information to help you do your job, yet at the same time putting that information at risk. And we are constantly talking about about that every single day, how to protect sources and methods yet still get the job done. And this is a cultural change that is that has taken a while. In the FBI, uh, 9-11 certainly drove that on the counterterrorism side. And on the counterintelligence side, we have had a, a slow buildup to it. Certainly the events around the 2016 elections have 
forced us together more over the past five or six years. But the only way that we can be effective against our adversaries is if we work together as partners. And the only way we can work together as partners is to have transparency into uh, each other's business. And that means identifying pockets of information that we can all work on and, and know, and then also be grown up about it and say, hey, there's things that each of us does that we don't need to know about and go into that relationship understanding where the boundaries are. And uh, we're making some good things happen. I think people can picture that here in Washington, right? You can, you can picture, uh, if not you, some of your colleagues getting together with security and counterintelligence officers or their equivalents at a number of departments and agencies and bureaus and other entities. Um, a little bit harder in the wider national context, but Miriam, up front, you talked about state and locals. And I think it's probably educational to talk a bit about that, the fact that the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, in cooperation with the FBI, is doing an unprecedented level of outreach to state, local, tribal, territorial, and private sector entities. Talk through that. First of all, why, especially from the PRC threat point of view, and then what does that look like when you go out to Ottumwa, Iowa, or Lincoln, Nebraska, and you're talking to people about a topic that they've never really had to deal with at that tangible of a level before? Yeah. On the state and local piece, why? Why are we doing outreach to state and local? Really, it's because we have seen China build closer relationships with state and local officials. This with is something... Local U.S. officials. With right. state and local U.S. officials. So these are relationships that they have nurtured over decades. But as they've, I think, as China has seen that there's more bipartisan consensus against China these days, the the relative autonomy that state and local leaders have from Washington presents an opportunity for them to be able to get voices to advance Beijing's position on the national stage, if you will. So a couple of ways that we have seen this, we've seen, for example, cases in which they've been, the, uh, the Chinese government has been rather overt about it, in which the PRC has said, you know, to a state or local official, I'm going to need you to speak out uh, against U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods, right? So so a state or local official speaking out about a national-level policy. Uh, we've also seen uh, the PRC, again, overtly asking state legislators to, to introduce uh, resolutions, you know, praising China's COVID-19 response. We've also seen them uh, stay to uh, certain states that they would uh, withdraw their investment in that state if their governor visited Taiwan. So there are different areas where we see this threat play out, where they're using um, these relationships with state and local officials to as, as an effort to shape U.S. policy and the U.S. discussion. Uh, what does engagement look like with state and local? So, you know, we do not tell state and local officials to view all engagement with China with suspicion, okay? So to be clear, like, we, we recognize some of that is going to happen, that, that we, we are not saying to view it all blanket suspicion. What we are saying is that state and local officials ought to consider a number of things as they move forward in some of these engagements. So we've seen, for example, that China is, is really aggressively targeting U.S. data technology and talent. So we've asked state and local officials to consider, like, in this engagement, make sure there's transparency and accountability and are 
is the foreign entity, not just China, but you know, China or the foreign entity with with whom uh, the the state is engaging, are they able to siphon off data, technology, or talent as part of of this effort? Two, are they able to develop some sort of leverage? Is the foreign entity able to develop leverage over that particular state or lo- um, or local official? And those are the kinds of things we want them to think about as they go into these things. And then thirdly, you know, just we we think about. If, for example, a foreign entity is seeking to uh, gain access or, or do something near a, a sensitive facility in a particular state or location or a military base, we encourage them to work with all the relative stakeholder, relevant stakeholders to really think through that and, and, and have a good sense of what the, the threats are in that as it relates to that. And those sensitive facilities sounds like are, are much more widely defined than they used to be. It's not yes. military bases. Uh, U.S. federal government facilities, yes. sometimes it is seed factories or a company developing mm-hmm. an emerging technology, working on semiconductors, mm-hmm. issues like that. It's interesting. In, in your conversation there, you, you talked about two very different things to my ear. The first set of things you talked about is basically influence operations, that whether it's the PRC or someone else coming to, let's say, a prominent governor of an important state and saying, hey, we really want you to lobby the federal government about this, or we want you to say this publicly about what your state is going to do regarding Uyghurs or, mm-hmm. or Taiwan or some other issue. That, that's influence. But then you transition seamlessly into, uh, but they're also trying to get information. They're also trying to, whether it's intellectual property or state secrets, and I guess I mean that at the state level yeah. as well as the federal state secrets level. Those are two different things. So, Alan, does the FBI look at those Similarly, that they're, they're of equal importance, or do you notice that you kind of have to allow some of the former because traditional diplomacy bleeds over into influence operations at some point, whereas stealing <clears throat> secrets is just stealing secrets? This is a little bit of a gray area for us where when does foreign influence cross the line into malign foreign influence or into an area where the FBI needs to get involved in? We have decided we are limiting our engagement in these foreign influence operations to those that are subversive, undeclared, coercive, or criminal. And if it, if it hits one of those four pieces, subversive, undeclared, coercive, or criminal, the FBI will engage and will either engage investigatively, uh, many times will do defensive briefings to the, the entity that's being targeted. And sometimes we even get their cooperation to work back against whatever Chinese or, or Russian or Iranian entity is doing the influence. I don't, this is all one big cloud of activity that China is doing. It's not a, okay, this is influence and this is IP theft. It could very well be the same thing where a delegation comes in and wants to give money to build factories or they have, you know, mask diplomacy during the COVID pandemic where they give masks and then ask for favors back. But in the process of doing that, or for example, uh, setting up a joint venture with a, with a company, they may require that company to provide a lot of information about its proprietary information, about its, its, its network infrastructure. They may require that company to, to give access to their people and all of that sort of easily blends from influence to economic espionage in a seamless and worrisome way. One more question about the the PRC before we go elsewhere. I anticipate there will be some other questions about the PRC later. But Miriam, what what Alan just talked about in terms of that gray area between 
I mean, it's perfectly fine for anyone to come to a mayor or town manager or a governor, state legislator, say, you know, we think the best policy would be this. That's not, that's not a problem. You defined it as if it's undeclared, if it's subversive, then it almost inherently becomes a problem. But if they're doing it out in the open, that's generally okay. How, when you're doing outreach, because that's the, the role primarily of NCSC, when you're doing outreach, how do you talk through that? Because you've got everything from First Amendment speech issues to laying the seeds for some kind of compromise and manipulation later to the actual subversive, undeclared stuff that you would call Alan in on. How do you, how do you talk to people about that overall threat without crossing over into be afraid of everyone all the time? Yeah, I mean, I think that's why it's important to describe the threat landscape, the way it can evolve, right? It's not going to look exactly the same every single time. We're just asking people to be vigilant about uh, these engagements, to be looking out for some of these red flags that might be indicators of, of foreign intelligence activity. Mm -hmm. And yeah. to be more vigilant towards some than others, is that fair to say? I, I think not like towards Chinese delegations right. necessarily, mm -hmm. but I think it's saying, if you as a state or a local official are seeking to build a relationship with a foreign entity, any foreign entity, how do we think about that engagement in a way that really looks at what they're able to get from it or whether they're able to get leverage from us, have leverage over us as a result of it? Right on. Alan, can you pick yeah, up I on just, that? I just want to hit one point that our concern is not with the people of China. I know this yeah. is something we say, but the, the threat that we face is from the Chinese Communist Party yeah. and the policies and practices that they've put in place. And we are not saying that everybody from China is bad and you shouldn't talk to anybody. What we are saying is that the government of China, led by the Chinese Communist Party, has a, a robust and systematic effort to influence us and target us and steal our critical technologies to make them better. And we ask, all we're asking people to do is when you engage with an entity from China, that you go into that engagement with your eyes wide open, understanding that there's more to it than, there potentially is more to it than what is actually being presented to you up front. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed 
my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Let's, let's broaden it out a little bit. Not to say that there aren't significant threats from Iran, Cuba, North Korea, and 180 plus others. Uh, but in recent years, the public statements coming out of the FBI and the NCSC have really focused on China and Russia. It, almost always the same breath ha has both. Alan, first, in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it's, it's easy to see that Russia's attention is so focused on that conflict 
that it's almost like we can not shift all of our attention, but maybe relatively put the balance more on some of these diverse threats from the PRC and other actors, because Russia is so occupied that the traditional spycraft is, is different now. Or you could look at it and say, Russia is on a war footing, and they are doing some things in counterintelligence that they've always been capable of, but now maybe we need to be more vigilant about what they could do. Without talking about specific cases under investigation, because I know you would if I didn't give you that caveat. That's just what you would do in this forum. <laughs> I had forum. it right there. But kind of characterize the, the Russian threat overall, especially how it compares to the PRC in that you know, 30,000 foot view. So I think right now we're, we're in, a, in a, <clears throat> a unique time in history where, at least right now, Russia is, is very much focused on Ukraine. They've got an international audience they're trying to address, and they've also got probably more importantly an internal audience that they're trying to address. So a lot of their efforts are to convince the internal audience inside Russia that the war is a just war and, and Putin is making the good decisions to bring the country into this war. Uh, here on the ground in the United States, we have not really seen a change in their posture uh, in, in terms of activities. Uh, they continue to have intelligence officers that are operational. They continue to come at us through cyber means, and they are they continue to be probably the the, the adversary with the best overall tradecraft that we yeah. that we work up against. Broadly, the difference between Russia and China uh, it's a, it's a scale. I mean, China is literally an order of magnitude greater than than the Russian threat in terms of number of people that are that are are working the threat against us. And broadly, and this is very overgeneralizing, but, but the way that, that sometimes we describe it is that China's focus to increase their stature in the world is, is to make themselves better by either stealing from others or creating policies in other countries that help China. Russia is trying to make themselves relatively better by undercutting others. So, if Russia knocks us down relative, they're, they're higher. So you see a lot of their effort being uh, targeted on influence operations and creating divisive or, or fostering divisiveness between um, racial parties, for example, or uh, some, some controversial things for driving wedges between pockets of America. Mm -hmm. So broadly speaking, probably over broadly, Russia's tendency is to knock us down. China is to, is to bring themselves up. And Traditionally, the FBI has worked with many foreign partners on specific <laughs> counterintelligence threats as they come up. It makes me wonder about NCSC. Is there an international role working with liaison partners in the intelligence context, uh, law enforcement partners? Is that something that NCSC gets involved in, or do you defer to the elements that are more operational to do that? No, I, mean, I, I we do some engagement with foreign partners, select foreign partners that have uh, counterparts that, that work similar issues. I think we often do it in partnership with FBI or other agencies that are relevant, um, and, and we talk about the types of things that we're doing, how we're thinking about the threat, what kinds of strategies we're putting in place, and then how we do public or private sector outreach. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about how you do this from an organizational point of view, because we are at a university and there are students who are looking for employment at some point in the future. And this is a, I don't know, growth industry, I think it's fair to say. Counterintelligence yes. is hiring. Yes. National security in general is hiring, but counterintelligence is certainly hiring. We're at the place now where you are out there publicly talking about getting a job in counterintelligence, which again, didn't used to be a thing a long time ago. 
and helping people with the clearance process. Now, it is called the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. You have a security component, which helps the whole U.S. government handle security threats to the government, which can involve clearances and getting people cleared. So what's your advice to people looking to enter the counterintelligence field? What should they be thinking about in terms of security? And what is it that you're looking for in terms of people who want to enter this? First of all, this is a definitely a growth industry. I mean, I think the way we see the counterintelligence threat landscape changing, the way there are more actors and more targets and more capabilities, uh, there will be more work to come, and we need good people, uh, maybe some of you here in the audience, uh, to join us in that space. I mean, I think when we uh, look for people to join our ranks, we're really looking for people who are critical thinkers, good writers, people who have a good sense of identifying what sorts of problems there are on the geopolitical landscape and identifying some potential mitigations for them. In the security clearance process, I mean, we're continuing to work uh, broadly on uh, security clearance policy modernization. That is something that uh, NCSC, in partnership with other departments and agencies, are, are working on, and we do hope that that will move more smoothly in the coming years. Different agencies and departments involved in this have different clearance requirements mm, and different mm -hmm. processes for incoming candidates even, just on the question of use of illicit drugs. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you help to coordinate and integrate, or do you really leave that up to each entity to do, as long as you're aware of them at that level? Um, well, there is some broader work happening uh, at, in our space on this as well. Um, I would point out that there is still a distinction between what the federal policy is related to illicit drugs. And so that certainly impacts or has an impact on, on clearance processes. Sure. Let's yes. talk about the FBI more specifically. You're, you're at about the three-year mark as assistant director of mm -hmm. CI. So you have a pretty good sense now of what skill set makes a good counterintelligence officer. Is this something you're looking for people with a very specific background coming in, or do you agree with Miriam that critical thinking and those kinds of things are just as important? I think there's really two, uh, two critical skills to being a good FBI counterintelligence officer. One is uh, just a core function of being an FBI agent. You have to be able to talk to people and have good communication skills. We are only as good as our ability to talk to people and to get them to tell us things and have a normal conversation, hopefully like this is a normal conversation. We, <laughs> we, we are only uh, as good as our ability to communicate. And at, its, at our core, I need people who can, who can talk to everybody that we have to interact with. And two, uh, probably the, what I value the most, aside from the, the normal core uh, abilities of an agent, is, is creativity. And the reason I value that is because just like we have, we have now have been around, the counterintelligence division has been an entity in the FBI for 83 years now. Our adversaries have been looking at us for 80 something years. And in many cases, they know how we've acted in the past, uh, how we're going to act in the future, the types of questions we ask better than, than we know ourselves. So I need people to come in and be creative about the job accomplish the same task, but do it in a different way than perhaps it was done last year or five years or 10 years ago. And that requires us to know our history, but also at the same time to really try and figure out ways to, to come up with creative and impactful operations that inflicts the most cost and consequences on the adversaries. So communications and creativity. Sure. 
we've, we've talked about a lot of different organizations, private sector, public sector, uh, federal, state, local, tribal. We, I don't think we've said the word Congress yet. And that's traditionally an area that Congress was not as heavily involved in as some other parts of intelligence and national security. And I'm just wondering if you can characterize the overall relationship, both in terms of support for what uh, NCSC does and enough awareness of what the counterintelligence environment is to be helpful without getting so involved that it becomes, in a sense, an attempt to micromanage through oversight. Could you describe the relationship with Congress overall? Sure. I mean, I, I, you may be tracking that uh, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence recently did an audit on the CI community and, and organizationally, NCSC specifically. As part of it, they took into consideration the changing landscape that we've talked about today and whether counterintelligence for the U.S. government is postured correctly to address those threats. They've identified a number of areas, made recommendations where I think uh, potentially new authorities would be needed or we'd need to work in partnership to resource certain things. We work closely uh, with our overseers and certainly are uh, looking forward to implementing some of the recommendations that they've highlighted in that report. Mm -hmm. Whether it's Congress or I'll give you one that's even easier, the media, when it comes to the <laughs> FBI perspective, again, a lot of institutional history dealing with both. Yep. In this new threat environment we've described, do you think that the media and Congress have a full enough understanding of the expanded threat environment to contribute to the national effort when it comes to counterintelligence? So I, I think much like I said, where we're, we're making a, a big push to communicate with academia and industry, we are trying to be more uh, transparent also with, with our overseers in Congress and with the media. So in the past three, five years, we have probably done more media engagements, proactive media engagements, than we have uh, in probably the 10 years before that. And it's a reflection that for us to, again, for us to get our job done, we need the cooperation of the American people. And they're only going to have that if they have the understanding uh, of what the threats are and why the FBI is involved. And they're only going to get that if they hear from us either through the media through our own outreach or maybe even members of Congress speaking on our behalf and, and supporting us with resources and, and money at the end, at each year. Right now. We're going to take some questions now. Please go ahead. So in the past, uh, human intelligence has been one of the core or arguably the most important domain in terms of counterintelligence. But in recent years, there's been a growing importance in cyber operations. So to this day, is human intelligence still the most important domain? And if so, will it remain so, in your opinion? This is a good one because it gets to the, the big issue of the diversity of the threat, but it also gets to the things in your mind that you won't give us details on, but the specific human and cyber issues. So characterize that overall relationship. And then overall, we haven't talked about cyber specifically very much. So any thoughts either one of you have on cyber? I'll, I'll put it this way. Humans is not going away. Right, Human will continue to be important because it can give us insights that we may not be able to get through other collection means. Uh, that said, I think the importance of the various types of ways one can, an intelligence agency co can collect information and bring that together is really where you get the value add. Yeah, so, so for me, human, human is never going to go away. Uh, behind every operation is a person who's providing direction, control, and funding. Cyber is a vector that adversaries use, just like they use delegations and intelligence officers and many other things that they do to come after us and our, and our valued objects. 
I, I, again, it's, it's, it's very much my answer to almost everything is it's not an either or, it's a both. Um, and on any given day, cyber is going to be the worst aspect of it and humans going to be the worst aspect of it. Um, but they, I think they were, now we're in a world where they will both always exist. We are in a, a world where some people, and I'm thinking here of some members of Congress, have fallen in love with cyber as, as an issue to really focus on. Yeah. And, and I think your message is an interesting one, which is <clears throat> if you're worried about the cyber threat from foreign intelligence services and bad actors, you need to be worried about human because they're linked. And if you're worried about human, you actually have to be concerned about cyber too. It really does. It's, it's a spectrum. So, yeah. so if you think of someone being, if, if you go back to the old days where someone would try and meet you in a bar and chat you up and, and find out about what you're doing, well, now they can find your profile on social media and connect with you and then meet you in person and then send you an email with a, with a, a, a malware on it and get into your computer. So mm-hmm. is that a human operation or is that a cyber operation? The answer is it's both. And, and uh, so it isn't, it's never an either or. It's just a blend. And where you are on that spectrum is, is, is sort of how we determine which tools we use to get in the way of it. Thank you. Thank you. Please go ahead. Hi, my name is uh, Michael. My question is, uh, how often are uh, counterintelligence types of operations uh, conducted abroad, in, but more in the sense of, is a potential of an overseas posting a consideration someone looking at potentially going into this field should consider? Well, I'll maybe I'll give you a generic answer. The answer is yes. <laughs> we have, the FBI uh, has uh, FBI agents in 90 plus countries around the world. And my division runs operations inside the United States and overseas. And uh, however many I have at any given time, I couldn't tell you, but we absolutely do. There, you know, even though we have people in 93 countries, not many people actually get out to do an overseas posting. But certainly, if you are coming into the Bureau with overseas experience, language experience, you know, you've done a study abroad, that is a helpful thing because it knows, for us, it, we know that you have experience working overseas, engaging with other cultures, and bringing that into the FBI would be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I'd also add just one more thing to note. Other departments and agencies that make up the intelligence community also have many positions overseas, of which some of them may be counterintelligence-focused. So I think there are opportunities um, across the board yeah, absolutely. for that. And I'll add one more thing that from uh, my experience, and maybe this reflects yeah. both of yours, is people don't always do counterintelligence for their entire yes. career. You might be working at the DIA on something else, and suddenly you find yourself um, helping run the NCSC. It's, it's maybe that intellectual curiosity, the creativity, the critical thinking that you talked about that are important. And those are true for many kinds of intelligence jobs. Uh, they happen to be specifically very well suited for counterintelligence. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Please. Hi, good evening. My name's Ann Finley. Earlier we talked about a best practice, or in my opinion, a best practice, the, um, the concept of bringing other organizations into a better situation, awareness of a situation, of a counterintelligence issue. Is there any particular lesson learned that you think the industry has also learned over time? Or another best practice? So the advice that I give to folks that work for me is you're only limited by your imagination. And whatever you can envision, you can do, or you should do. And that we, we should be doing things in the FBI against our adversaries that Hollywood wants to write, make movies about, right? We need to be that creative in terms of a best practice. Again, just, just coming off the creativity piece. It's really, it's really encouraging people to aspire for greatness. 
and don't be settled on uh, going after, for example, if you have a uh, one intelligence officer or one person who's stealing intellectual property, um, it's not enough just to to take care of that person, kick him out, deny his visa, PNGM. We have to work higher and have a much broader impact. So a best practice that makes us effective is really aspiring, set your goal very high, and then only then are you going to achieve a goal that high. If you just continue to look here and you're happy with picking off the low-level fruit, you're not going to do the things that we need to do, that the country needs us to do. And I think when you ask a question about um, best practices at organizations that they can implement, there are a couple of things that we've thought about or discussed with some of these private sector entities. Things like, you know, how do you look at uh, the risk that an organization faces across an entire enterprise. So thinking about risks in HR, risks in supply chain, all of that. Their efforts or, or things we've talked about as far as like creating insider threat programs, but not just insider threat programs like you're going to be a spy and I'm concerned about you sharing our intellectual property, but really like, you know, workforce wellness issues, right? Mental health issues, ensuring that you don't have an active shooter incident as well. These are the the types of things that we have shared with private sector partners um, that I think has been helpful as far as thinking about how you you build enterprise-wide, organizational-wide program. Yeah, for sure. Well, simply said, happy people don't spy. Yes, there you go. You know, and if you can if you can keep your work workforce energized, appreciated, and happy. You're gonna you're gonna reduce that insider threat greatly. Yeah. That, that's a good bumper sticker. You have that yeah. on your car. <laughs> it's a tattoo on my arm. So to sum <laughs> it up, to take it. care of your people and mm-hmm. aspire to be better. Right. There you Thank go. you. Yeah. There we go. Yes. Hi, my name is Aiden Jacobs. The question I want to pose to you all is the role of the average citizen in uh, counterintelligence. So, what can citizens in their limited capacities do to help prevent a cybersecurity threat? Is it simply just being informed about the issues, or is there something more that the average citizen can do? I mean, I think one thing we can think about uh, as as the average citizen is thinking about the types of information we put out about ourselves on social media, right? Because part of this involves all of us making ourselves a harder target. Uh, not We recognize we are going to live lives that are also engaged on so- social media. So uh, it's just thinking about what kind of information are we putting out there? How do we make ourselves a hard target to a foreign intelligence service that might be seeking to target me or the information I have access to? And then how how can I uh, engage with people who want to just, you know, friend me that are complete strangers? Like, you have to determine for yourself if that is um, a risk you are willing to take or, or if you can identify additional information about a, a stranger's company that they, they are purportedly uh, representing. Yeah. I, I, would just, I would just dovetail into that. On the cyber side, oh, that's not my area of expertise, but if you exercise uh, cyber hygiene... Um, you're going to eliminate 95% of the problems that you potentially face. You know, two-factor authentication, change your password regularly, do your regular updates. You're going to be uh, don't much click better on off. Links. And don't click on links. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, think before you link. Yeah. From a counterintelligence perspective, uh, my advice would be to trust your instincts. Um, you'll know if you are working in an industry where you have signed a non-disclosure agreement and you're not allowed to talk about something outside your company or you have a security clearance and you know these are the boundaries of what I can talk about and what I can't. And if you have somebody probing those areas, 
that's something you need to worry about and that's something you need to talk about and, and tell your security officer, tell an FBI agent, police officer, whoever it needs to be and get it into the system where we can address it. We can only do something about it if we know about it. So either the old adage, if you see something, say something. In the counterintelligence world, uh, we absolutely need people to sort of have their spidey senses up, know what's weird, and then not be afraid to say something about it. It's great advice. And yeah. I got to say, crazy idea here. You should make like a, a TikTok about that on your government device <laughs> and show that around. That too, would be great. Yeah. Too soon. Too Why soon. haven't we done this? <laughs> um, we are going to close with a question uh, from so, our YouTube audience, uh, voiced by Larry Pfeiffer. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so YouTube question comes from a Martine Reed. Interesting question. It's talking about um, the concerns that exist today in the United States with domestic groups, bad actors. You know, we have white supremacist groups, we have other uh, racist groups, we have, we have you know, terrorist groups that exist within the United States. Can you speak to uh, how much foreign intelligence services may be trying to influence them, infiltrate them, work with them, uh, fund them, et cetera? And I know this can be sensitive, because if you look at our history, this was an issue, you know, you go back to the 1960s and the 50s, you know, there, there, there's a lot of history about supposed infiltration of of domestic groups. Uh, so I'm just curious, uh, and I think Martine is curious, if uh, you can address that issue from both an NCSC strategic perspective as well as perhaps what you're seeing on the ground from the FBI. You know, one of the ways that we have, uh, we, that we typically characterize the threat uh, landscape is that we see more actors in this space. We, we define it as a bunch of mores really quickly. More actors, more targets, more capabilities, more threat vectors, more collaboration between intelligence services. It's a much and longer more bumper sticker. Very but it long. still works. Happy people don't spy, much pithier. But all that to say, you know, as we look at that landscape, one of the things we talk about on the uh, more actors front is is that we do see more non-state actors, ideologically motivated groups operating in a way uh, that could be construed as uh, intelligence activities or, or involved in that CI landscape. Yeah, I, I think I would limit my comments to the assessment that the intelligence community put out in 2017, talking about how Russia tried to sow discord inside the United States by driving wedges between certain social groups. Um, that document still stands. It's still very accurate. And I think I'd limit it. Leave it at that. Excellent. So we will do one more question in the room. Congratulations. Please let us know who you are and what you'd like to hear. Sure. Thank you. Uh, when it comes to intelligence and counterintelligence on the world stage, is the U.S. at an inherent disadvantage against authoritarian regimes that can act swiftly and unilaterally without worrying about things like due process or human rights? Yep. <laughs> Is it, let, let me phrase it in a slightly different way. Um, is it a vulnerability that perhaps authoritarian regimes don't have? You say yes. Um, is it also a strength, though, because of what we can bring to the table in terms of this whole of government effort we, we talked about? I think it's a strength. I mean, yes, that's my gut reaction is yeah. yep. Um, but, but I think it is a strength because you're able to bring together different viewpoints that actually strengthen a response. And that's something that you'd be less likely to see in an authoritarian system. Yeah, I think I go back to the comments that we've both said throughout. Partnerships are everything. And you can be an authoritarian regime uh, and sort of bully your way to, to action. But if you really want to gather international support or support inside your government 
to, to work collectively against a threat, people have to have confidence in you that you, that you play by the rules. They know what the rules are and you're consistent. And, uh, for all of our faults inside the U.S. government, we are rule followers. We have rules for everything and we are predictable and that inspires confidence in our, in our partners and hopefully fear in our adversaries that they know we're going to play by rules and we're still going to beat them even though they don't play by the same rules. Uh, final question for both of you before closing remarks. If people want to find out more about the National Counterintelligence and Security Center um, or about the Counterintelligence Division, not historically the most public division at, at <laughs> FBI, yeah. um, what, what are the best places for them to go? You can find us on our website. If you look up NCSC, uh, we are National Counterintelligence and Security Center because there is a UK NCSC, mm -hmm. so to be clear. Um, look us up. And you can connect with us there. We also have a Twitter account, so NCSCGov. Follow us. Yeah, for the FBI, FBI.gov, and there's a What We Do link. Click on that and hit the counterintelligence button, and you'll learn a lot about the division and what we do. We appreciate it. Thank you. Larry, over to you. So <clears throat> speaking of uh, authoritarian governments, I think there was a headline this morning that Vladimir Putin met with the FSB, which is his foreign intelligence and counterintelligence service, and he was berating them a bit this morning about the, the, the level of their performance in recent times, and so... Uh, uh, I would imagine uh, that didn't necessarily inspire a high level of confidence in his workforce uh, uh, in, in, in getting their job done. Uh, the only other thing I would note is there's a, a woman named Caroline on the YouTube channel who says, I'm available to work, take me. So you, <laughs> you, I think you must have Love accomplished it. something All tonight. Right, we got so one. Yeah. Thank you to uh, Miriam. Uh, thank you to Alan for taking the time to come and visit with us. Uh, thanks you to the Shar School for hosting the Hayden Center, and thank you for General Hayden for uh, all the inspiration you give us every day. Thank you very much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Remember to get ad-free versions of this and some other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com slash lawfare. Remember also to rate and review the Lawfare Podcast, Chatter, Rational Security, our whole line of podcasts. It really helps. We appreciate it. The podcast was edited by Jen Pacha Howell. Your audio engineer for this episode was, well, the Michael V. Hayden Center in cooperation with Lawfare. We'd like to also thank Sophia Yan for providing our music. As always, thank you for listening.